0: Eric Fischel is an internationally acclaimed American painter and sculptor, artist behind Tumbling Woman. I'm joined by Michelle Good, lawyer, poet, author. Next. I speak with Dr. Lisa Richardson, an executive with the National Consortium on Indigenous Medical Education and strategic advisor on Indigenous health. (sighs) Emily St. John Mandel's two most recent novels draws in so deeply and leave us thinking about them long after we've put them down. We turn to acclaimed journalist, Canada Walk of Famer, Order of Canada recipient, and fashion entrepreneur, Jeannie Becker. Best-selling author, television star and epic comedian, Mark Critch. Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. After two seasons of episodes covering all types of risk in finance, education, climate, healthcare, privacy, we're going to be taking a break for a while. But before that, we're revisiting some of my favorite conversations. This is the third of our four wrap-up episodes. Today, we're exploring how even something as beautiful as art has its own share of risk. Frida Kahlo said, I paint flowers so they will not die. The idea that art might imitate life can actually have a profound contribution to existence by way of allowing us to never forget what is important passions and hobbies turned careers might appear so dramatic and curated that most of the so-called working world might not take it seriously. But we know better than that. Art plays an important role in society, a role as a reflector of humanity, the measure of a healthy existence, the voice of a nation, the soul of a people, and so much more. How can a character or a storyline in a novel have an impact in real life? Lawyer, poet, author, and winner of the 2021 Amazon First Novel Award for the novel Five Little Indians, Michelle Good, and habitual risk writer of novels such as Station Eleven and The Glass Hotel, Emily St. John Mandel, have managed to do just that. David Hubert, self-styled, dirty nature writer, educator, and critic is not afraid to delve into the abandoned, damaged, bruised spaces in nature to find new beginnings. All three of you's characters and story further important global conversations over the past two years on truth and reconciliation and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Since art often relies on immersion of the senses, let's not leave out how it makes us feel. From the emotional response to the infamous sculpted tumbling woman by Eric Fischel to the infectious laughter incited from the comedic writings of Mark Critch, the world is forced to engage in meaningful conversations about marginalized groups in society, how we relate to one another, and even to heal old wounds. So what is art anyway? Because it's so subjective and relies on the opinions of its audience, it's very different from any other industry consumed with metrics or regulations. So how can we determine its importance? And how do we even understand it? The short answer is that there is no one answer, and that's the point. For all of my guests, it requires agility and commitment to be open and vulnerable right from the start, which is pretty risky. So let's, uh, let's start off with, what is the role of the artist in a time of crisis and following a
1: crisis? The gift of the artist is that they are able to put into a uh, controllable form, a digestible form, order made from chaos. And so when, uh, when there is a crisis, a crisis uh, is, by definition, chaos. What the artist can bring to that is a way to understand what is happening, what has happened, uh, that becomes a shared experience that can, I think, help either heal wounds or give us a sense of how to move forward or certainly give us a space to reflect in.
0: I wanted to ask you um you know sometimes we talk about art for art's sake but that's not what this is. You wrote this book to have impact. Tell us about that impact you were hoping to achieve.
2: Well, you know, there's been so much work, um, wonderful work that's been done on the residential schools. I mean, we have lots of memoir from survivors and we have, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Report, tons of work that's been done in the academy. But I felt that, and this was the primary reason that I proceeded um, in the fiction genre, is that is that people really, really did not understand the true and lasting impact of what happened in these schools, what happened to these kids over 120 years, what happened to the communities over 120 years. Because we didn't just experience this as individuals, we experienced it as a people. And it impacted our communities, parents, grandparents, just as much as it impacted those little kids. And so I got so sick and tired <laughs> of, you know, hearing this terrible thing, you know, the the ubiquitous and just so awful question of why can't they just get over it? And I wanted to answer that question. I wanted to sit down and paint a picture of what it means to be a survivor, whether that's, you know, a direct survivor in the sense that they've attended the school or the intergenerational survivors who also suffer very deeply from this terrible legacy. So that's what I set out to do. By making it a fictional account, it's safer for, for people to walk into this book, and then I trap them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but yeah, it is, because they have, before they turn the first page, they have an out they can say, well, it's just fiction, it's, you know, it's just a story. And they can say, oh, you know, it's just art, right? But art reflects life. And, um, and the, the, the advantage of proceeding by way of a fictional account is that you have a much greater latitude to tell the truth of the story without being limited to a given set of facts, if you will.
0: So I think I'm hearing you saying that fashion still matters. Taking a step back, if you were speaking to someone who just didn't, you know, give two hoots about fashion, how would you explain why fashion matters?
3: Fashion is the one thing that really differentiates us humans from any other creature on the planet. So uh, that matters. We're the only ones that really get to dress up or voluntarily uh, dress up. Fashion is the one creative decision that everybody gets to make every day of their lives. Fashion has incredible transformational powers. Fashion can elevate the spirit. I mean, when used correctly, fashion could also make you feel horrible about yourself Mm. when you're you're victimized by it. Uh, But, you know, I think fashion just matters in so many ways. And it's also a a multi-billion dollar industry that is really important um, to keep all kinds of uh, people going, uh, you know, to keep all kinds of uh, societies functioning
0: economically. So you are a self-styled dirty nature writer. What does that mean?
4: Yeah, um, dirty nature writing is a what we call, uh, I developed it with my friend Tom Cull, uh, a poet based in London, Ontario, and actually an environmental um, activist as well, um, and a person that I really admire. And we were part of a poetry group and we just started writing these poems about, you know, the natural world we saw around us and um, how fragile and sort of tainted and damaged, but also beautiful it was. Um, so that's, I'd say the driving spirit of Dirty Nature writing it. It wants to preserve things like the comic, Um, to preserve the beauty in a damaged world. It's responding to um, traditional forms of nature writing that have attempted to establish and maintain a clear dichotomy between nature and culture or nature and civilization. And it always wants to sort of muddy those waters. You know, um, it's been a long time since Bill McKibben wrote about the end of nature back in the 80s or the death of nature. And um, yeah, I mean, we can't really... Um With the climate crisis and every and sort of toxicity and everything else that we know is ocean acidification, um, we can't really maintain an idea that there's such a thing as nature with a capital N unaffected by human beings. So dirty nature writing wants to acknowledge the dirtiness of nature, but also sort of revel in the messiness of ecological life and the complex entanglements between human social structures, um, human industry, and uh, ecological being, non-human life. Tell us,
0: what draws you creatively to risk management failures, to
5: meltdowns? I think that I've developed a reputation as being this sort of disaster artist. Um, you know, I would say it kind of varies book by book. So I would say with the first of those books, Station Eleven, really the project was that I wanted to write about a post-technological world. So it was less about wanting to write about a collapse and more about wanting to write about what the world is like 20 years later. But of course, if that's your premise, you've got to end the world somehow. So there is inevitably a disaster in there. Uh, But yeah, I would say that wasn't my primary interest. Uh, With The Glass Hotel, I guess I was more interested in writing about this catastrophic failure. I was really looking at the novel as historical fiction. Uh, What I will say, though, is kind of a general, almost more technical than creative note for fiction writing, is that... If you can place your characters in the midst of a catastrophe, or as you might put it, a failure of risk management, that is an inherently dramatic situation. And it's really easy to launch a a gripping plot out of that. So I see that as a reason why, why authors take that approach in general.
0: I'm really enjoying Son of a Critch. Uh, When I read the book, though, I felt like it was a little bit sad. Um, You know, uh, the church was a fraud. There was a fair bit of violence. Friends ended up in jail. What's the relationship between tragedy and comedy?
6: Well, I think, you know, it's it's a great way of dealing with things. And A lot of, I guess, us comedians coming out of Newfoundland and Labrador can be uh, maybe a little acerbic, sharp-tongued, dark at times, but also, you know, quite joyful and loving and and sentimental as well. But I think our sense of humor kind of, I guess it comes from finding humor uh, to get you through hard times. Uh, you know, living off the sea, there were always drownings. The economy was always failing and uh, people were out of work, the Cod Moratorium, all these things. And I guess it was a matter of, uh, you know, you have to laugh at it to survive. And, um, and it's also, I think, sometimes humor in a dark situation is a way to remind each other, you know, we're going to get through this. Great thing humor does, too, is it kind of resets a room or, or sometimes if somebody makes fun of something that nobody wants to say, the elephant in the room, whatever, once it's spoken about, once it's the bubble has been popped, it's, it's a great relief for people.
0: Science seems to garner respect as a discipline that uses so-called serious skills that people think of as the polar opposite to the arts, where the creative process, abstract curation, and sometimes flippant content takes priority. There, all things can be researched and proven, right? In order to acquire that proof though, the scientific method actually requires some creativity. While experimenting with a process, you have to try, risk failing a bunch of times and try again. When you try, it's rarely with the exact same tactic and that creativity pays dividends. In the art world, taking risks and failing can expose truths, spark important conversation and even help us heal. My guests share what they see as positive outcomes of their works. I was reading uh, an interview that you did and you had said, and this was speaking of uh, the period after 9-11, you said, if artists were ever needed, now would be the time. And that struck me as um, as beautiful, suggesting that you know the, the artist has a, has
1: a role in healing. I I believe it. I believe it does. I'm not necessarily in the majority of that among uh, contemporary artists, but I I certainly believe that that's one of the functions that art has. uh, You know, which is that they, you know, the the thing about grief, the thing about uh, fear, the the thing about anxiety is it immediately throws you into a sense of isolation and a sense of helplessness. And if you can create an experience or recreate experiences in which, through art, in which people can see themselves, then they, you know, at the very least, they realize they're not alone. And so it alleviates some of that that stress, some of that terror, some of that uh, anxiety. And as I said before, I think it also, uh, art can go a long way in giving us a foothold, giving us a handhold, giving us a a language uh, by which we can all uh, connect to each other and communicate with each other, which brings us together, uh, sort of reweaves The uh, the gaping hole that was uh, created by the crisis uh, that is being experienced.
0: What's your sense? Are are we hearing from artists, writers, poets enough in our public dialogue, or do we treat it like it's you know in a box? And yes, we'll talk about uh, writing, uh, but but not in the same breath as what's happening around us.
4: Mm, yeah that's a rich and fascinating question I yeah I certainly have never felt uh, an alienation from the broader world as an artist I certainly feel um, yeah I mean I think particularly with poetry you can feel that poetry is sort of living in its own incubator and um, that there's a very insular world where poets judge other poets and it's not necessarily leaking out to the broader public we might say but at the same time you know if you think of Someone like the way that, you know, uh, the incredible way that Shakespeare impacted the English language. I think certainly canonical works of literature have a massive influence on our culture and will continue to have a massive influence on our culture. Um, The work that's being made today and sort of that is part of the Petri dish of art that will become sort of... uh, massively filtered down uh as we get the the art that remains uh to speak for sort of our contemporary civilization maybe that's not always a huge part of the cultural conversation i think uh, the other way to look at it is the way that uh mainstream culture influences art <laughs> and that's actually sort of where i where i want to go here and what i'm what i'm deeply interested in and i think you know i think well, for one, I think art is digesting certain cultural stimuli such as climate crisis in very interesting ways um, and then repurposing them, rethinking them, remixing them, recycling them, asking us to think them anew uh, in ways that mainstream discourse may not be able to uh, to compute and in, in sort of complex and emotional ways. I
0: wanted to ask about the impact of the book on you, um, uh, you you previously represented survivors of residential schools. You're 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 trained. Uh, you have legal training. Um, uh, you've talked uh, in other instances uh, about your mother. Was there any healing for you, or other type of impact um, through the process? of writing this book. I'll, I'll just briefly share at one point, I, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer as well. And at one point I was representing, um, survivors of uh, sexual assault. And I had to step away. Like I found myself, you know, afraid to walk home alone. Um, and when that combined with a personal loss in, in my own life, it, it just became harder to manage the, the boundaries that, that, that protects your, your own well-being as uh, so so what was was there was there a positive impact on you and did you need to do some healing through writing this book
2: well yeah you know I mean I I don't know that that my own healing if you will um happened through the course of writing this book I mean I've suffered my own traumas and so on but I felt very empowered by letting these characters who really took on a life of their own very early on in the writing process and just letting them tell me their story, right? The way people tell their story. You know, so many times when I was writing this book, I felt like a scribe. I've said it before. I felt like, That these stories were in the air and they were just coming through me to, you know, to articulate in this way. There were some things that were very, very difficult to write about. Um, Writing about Lily was very, very difficult for me because Lily was a real person. My mother watched her hemorrhage to death from tuberculosis at residential school. (laughs) I wrote a poem about Lily. Gee, I think it was like 1994, (laughs) you know, back in the dark ages. And the last line of that poem was, Lily, I remember. And that's what I want. That's why I put Lily's proper name in the book and recounted that story in that way. Because she was a real little girl. You know, her life and her death Imagine just being a little girl and dying surrounded by strangers without any comfort or proper care or you know and imagine the impact on my mother being a little girl herself and watching her friend die so so there were times in the book there were things that that I felt I had to share that I had to write about and in doing it I felt that I um that I fulfilled some obligations if you will In terms of my own life, that I have some understandings and some experiences that are quite rare. And and this was my opportunity to articulate them in this way so that maybe people can understand.
0: Let's start with the climate impacts, and not to get you know um, too in the trenches on the technical. But but, but what needs to change? Like uh, you know, the I guess at least part of it has to be mm-hmm. that business model that relies too heavily on uh, high rates of consumption.
3: Yeah, I mean uh, that for sure. And again, a lot of our wants and. Um, and desires are just basically seduced by the media and what happens. So that, that's that been problematic too, the way that we uh, market fashion, that definitely has to change and I think is changing to some degree. And I, I work with uh, TSC, which is Today's Shopping Choice, which is like, you know, formerly the shopping channel, you know, right. run by Rogers. And we've, we're making very conscious effort now going forward and talking to our customer about how to shop better. That's Mm. what we need to know, how to shop better, how to shop more wisely, how to think not once, twice, three times, four times maybe about what you are going to buy and why you are going to buy it, why you might need it and what you're looking for and quality as you know, become like the last word. I mean, we really have to get back to equality because a lot of product was just being put out there for the sake of being put out there. Um, so that that's one thing. Um, but I think that you know, I was always surprised in all my years, you know, covering the fashion scene in the trenches of the, the world's fashion capitals. I always wondered why there wasn't more innovation going on with fabrication in terms of technology. Why were we still seeing the same old fabrics being put out there after, you know, years and years and years? And wasn't it time to create some kind of new um, innovative fabrication that would maybe be self-cleaning or self-repairing or or that could, you know, change because you didn't feel like wearing a little black dress that nice, you wanted a red dress. Maybe there there's something built into the, the dress that if you, you know, exposed it to a certain kind of light, it could change color. I mean, there's just so much um, scientifically... It, it, technologically that I thought maybe could be done and experimented with. And I was, you know, eager to see that, um, you know, I have been thrilled as the whole fashion community, I think has been thrilled to see what's gone on with uh, recycling and upcycling a fabric. And that's so important. I've never been more important. And that's really, really wonderful to see. And I think we're seeing more and more and more of that, but sustainability is the big conversation in fashion today. There's no question. And Also, do you need to go out and buy something brand spanking new? You know, what about this circular idea of, you know, wearing something until you just don't want to wear it anymore? Perhaps it doesn't suit you or serve your purposes anymore. Put it out there for someone else to enjoy. Or, you know, you could sell it or you could... turn it into something else I mean there's there's just so many different ways of approaching uh, your closet than just that kind of oh I don't have anything to wear I better run out and buy something new and you just keep putting more stuff in there and jamming it full of stuff and I think this is what's happened during the pandemic a lot of us spending so much time at home and getting to maybe not having that much cause to go into our closet except for you know Hey, let, let's see what's really in there. I've been so busy running around the world. I haven't really, you know, checked out, uh, you know, the racks lately. And you go into your closet, you go, what am I doing with all this stuff? What do I need it for? I don't really wear it or, or finding great treasures that you've kept for sentimental reasons or, you know, or just because it was great design. You didn't want to get rid of it. So, yeah, let's revive that. Let's, let's bring it back. Let's make use out of it again. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting uh, journey for, uh, we fashionistas and just, you know, everybody in general, even if you, you know, weren't totally driven by fashion, I think you're going to be reexamining uh, the way you stock your closet uh, from now on, just a little bit more closely.
0: The other thing I also thought about was, in many ways, the Glass Hotel and Station 11 were about the risks of being an artist. mm mm-hmm the potential for violence, the risk of being forgotten, the financial risks. Right. Except for Paul. Paul in the Glass Hotel, against all odds, right, is the artist who finds his moment. What were you trying to say about the life of an artist?
5: Right. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Something that is hard to express without sounding really self-deprecating is that I think there's an incredible element of randomness in artistic success. Um, And, you know, I say that not to put down any of my own books. Uh, I, 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 absolutely stand behind them, but I'm aware at all times that there are any number of books published in the same year as station 11 and then the glass hotel, which were at least as good. Um, It just didn't sell as many copies and didn't get the same kind of recognition. And you know, you really see that quite clearly in literary awards, where this probably goes without saying. But you know, a different awards jury, which is to say, a different a different five people. You know, it's always about five people for all of these juries. A different five people would have picked a completely different long list and a completely different short list and a completely different winner. So I, I don't know. I guess with having Paul be the one character who, um, you know, th- there's no way of saying that he deserves it in any way. No, there's no kind of moral component to it at all. He's kind of objectively awful. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you're right. He is the one who experiences artistic success. Uh, you know, I suppose it's some commentary on just the randomness of it. It's not the best person who's the most successful. It's not even the best artist. It's not always the most talented it's the person whose work is in front of the right people at the right time. So there's just incredible luck involved in all of that. And then to go to the earlier part of your question about um, the uh, financial uh, perils, I suppose, of, of being an artist. You know, I went to school for contemporary dance. And that was a great preparation for being a writer. Because, you know, if you think that a writing career is precarious, <laughs> like... You know, um, if I blow out my knee, I'll still be a writer. But dancers can't always say the same thing. It's just a much a much higher risk uh, career, I would mm-hmm. say. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think that was really good preparation. And, you know, I think the reality is we'll all be forgotten. That's, uh, that's just kind of part of the human condition. And I think most artists will not make enough money to do art full time. And you just kind of have to, mm-hmm. I think you just kind of have to accept that.
0: Make no mistake, though, the other side of risk in art is that freedom of expression can garner responses that are not so warm. Locally or abroad, Mark Critch shares what it looks like when laughter goes wrong. There was uh, recently a a case went to the Supreme Court of Canada involving a comedian. Um, He had uh, made... um, a child singer with a disability uh the butt of his jokes and and the singer uh advanced a claim under the quebec uh charter of human rights um now i'm not going to ask you to opine on the law i'm a trained lawyer i wouldn't opine on that law i don't know i don't know well enough but in general do you think comedians should be able to say anything they want tell any joke
6: Well, I think with that one, he got away with that because it was a the Mm. child was famous enough that he was considered a public figure who you can make fun of. Legally, that's fine. And a lot of comedians will go on and on and say, oh, they're trying to take away or you can't joke about anything anymore. I just think that guy was a bad comedian. I think he's a, (laughs) a, a, a shitty comedian and I can get out there. Anyone could get up and make people laugh by doing really crude stuff, vulgar stuff, idiotic stuff. But why, why bother? Like if you're supposed to be this great comedian, kick up, you know, I always try to kick up the, uh, you know, the way I try to explain to people is two people like in a cartoon, right? You have a tramp character, like a Charlie Chaplin, you have a policeman. Now, if the policeman isn't looking and Charlie Chaplin kicks the policeman in the bum. It's funny. Charlie isn't looking. If a cop just kicks a homeless person in the bum, that's not funny. Two people, the same moment, movement. This Everything's the same, except for who does what to who. Kicking up is great. If you can, you know, look somebody powerful in the eye or, or say something to a crowd that is daring to them. If you're saying a young child who is sick is ugly and that's what you're going to the Supreme Court over, buddy, you know, work <laughs> on your stuff better. There will always be stupid comedians, though, right? And freedom yeah. of speech is—it's freedom of speech. You go back to, um, you know, uh, Milton Berle was saying we can't say things like this anymore on stage. Uh, people said Lenny Bruce went to court over it. George Carlin was arrested several times for swearing on stage. There were lots of people who used to do um, you know minstrel acts and stuff, and that stopped. And all those people said they're ta- they're being too politically correct. Back in those days, there were people who used to do um, a lot of what they called an ethnic act, where they would do different accents and make fun of you know Chinese people and Japanese people and things like that. And then. Those book acts stopped being booked because because the uh, Chinese American Association complained and people said, oh, you can't joke about anything anymore. So 100 years from now, some comedian will be saying, this is ridiculous. You can't joke about anything anymore. Right. (laughs) It'll keep getting pushed down. Mm -hmm. What doesn't change is I don't think any of those people are actually funny. Right. (laughs) So they're just picking on somebody who is uh, more vulnerable than them so that other idiots will find it funny. We'll always have idiots and assholes. That's always going to be an element. And I guess legally they have a right to do it. But generally what happened, I think, uh, with our history as we evolved is nobody is now arguing that they should still be able to do a minstrel act or nobody is arguing that they should still be doing these ethnic acts. And I would hope that, you know, in a few, well now, uh, uh, trans people, they're, they're the latest thing. Dave Chappelle is saying, Oh, why can't I make fun of trans people? You can do it, but should you be able to maybe come up with something else is the way I look at it. You know, I, I always think whenever I see a comedian arguing, that they can't say anything anymore. Generally, they're either not funny anymore or were never that funny. Until the pandemic
0: hit, most of us did not prioritize being a part of a global community, part of a larger we. Humanity has been and was very apparently disconnected. Our societies struggle to face problems like institutional racism, climate change, or health crises head on even when we could easily do something to help. This is where art can make a big difference. Art is engaging and can help connect people across backgrounds, experiences, and even language. My guests' work has not only had an impact, but has pushed some political envelopes and covered more than a few hot topics that found their way into the global conversation. And what did... Is that like is that what you took away from the initial furor that the bronze version of Tumbling Woman at Rockefeller Plaza in Manhattan caused, or were 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 your learnings from that experience something different?
1: I I, like most of the world watched the uh, tragedy unfold on television. I was not uh, in the city the day it happened. And, uh, so I'm sitting there watching the, this nightmare unfold all day long and, and feeling this, you know, uh, wash, uh, just feeling myself spin out of control with all, uh, you know, the, the mind going crazy, the emotions going crazy with, uh, all of, all of the feelings that were being caused by this terrifying thing. And, uh, so it was in that. Moment of feeling myself spin out of control. That I knew that the only way back would be to create something that created a kind of a solid anchoring construct. Some something that would articulate the feelings that would try to reconnect me to it. And uh, and so within that moment, I I tried to begin to think of how to articulate this nightmare. And one of the things that happened very quickly in the United States was that they censored any images of people falling or jumping. But anyone who saw that, whether it was just for an instant or not, knew immediately that 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 was the penultimate expression of exactly how horrible that experience was. Uh, That thing of being caught between two, f- two choices of your own death. Uh, n- you know, it's, it just was, it it's like your worst nightmare. So I knew that in trying to articulate uh, how to honor the dead, how to uh, grapple with the what became very clear very quickly was the feeling the whole country' spinning out of control, getting off its own center, its own axis. Uh, and And so part of the desire to create something had to do with trying to find a way to you know, articulate the the imbalance uh, as well as the physical destruction. I, I didn't want it to be graphic. I wasn't interested in cre- recreating that horror for people. So the thing of tumbling came to mind. Tumbling is something that moves laterally, not uh, or not vertically. And uh, so it wasn't about crashing down. It was about rolling along. And uh, it was... You know, something that I, I was thinking of sagebrush or something where it's, you're unanchored, you're, you're blowing along, the wind is taking you wherever. Occasionally you, you hit something that stops your forward motion and then the wind catches again and you keep on rolling. That was kind of the things I was thinking about around the image of this woman, larger than life, tumbling. Uh, with her legs akimbo, her arms, one arm outstretched. And I, I wanted to have the outstretched arm because I was hoping that uh, people, when they were standing around the sculpture, would reach out and grab the the person and, and just hold her hand and uh, maybe even imagine that being something that would slow the tumbling down. Anyway, that was the spirit in which I, I made it, and I felt that it was... Uh, uh, it should be a public, uh, not a, you know, just something that would go into an art gallery. Do you think she was
0: too
4: political?
1: No, I don't think she was political at all. I, uh, I think it was a very human experience. So it, what I was uh, set on doing was bringing the body back into the mourning process uh, what happened very quickly, because there were no bodies, they were pulverized. 3,000 people died, but there were no bodies. So how do you deal with the, the grief? How do you deal with the mourning process when you, you can't make that closure? You, you can't see the dead, uh, and what happened in w- with the language of mourning turned very quickly to architecture, and uh, people started to grieve the loss of the buildings as though the buildings represented the human tragedy, which of course it didn't. Uh, so it was very important to me to bring the body back into the to the awareness and to the process. Um, and that's not a political gesture. That's a, uh, a, you know, a humanist one.
0: So there, you're an advocate and there's an advocate in the book. I have to be schmaltzy. I have to ask, is there some of you in Clara?
2: <laughs> Lots of people ask because of the advocacy aspect of this, but uh, I didn't create that aspect of Clara's character Um you know, as a reflection of my own life. It was really because the court workers were so important when they first came into being. And they were so important in terms of being basically the first opportunity for Indigenous voices to be heard in the courtroom. And, you know, for, you know, Indigenous defendants, if you will, to not just plead guilty because it's the easiest, it's the easiest thing to do. Right. And then and at that particular time that was occurring. And so it was an important part of the general story of the world as it was developing for Indigenous people at that time. So I put that in there. But I was just aging out of foster care right around the time, well, my characters were aging out of res- residential school. So so many of the experiences that they had trying to find their way in the city, I had. And, you know, we hear a lot these days about providing supports for kids coming out of foster care. But back then it was nothing. It was just you turn 18. If you've got a nickel in your pocket, that's it. Sink or swim, period. Right. Throw you into the ocean and that's it. You're on your own. So, It was important to me to try to uh, reflect some of those things in the book. Like, (laughs) uh, one of the things is when. when Maisie is bringing Lucy to the Manitou Motel. And by the way, Manitou is the Cree word for the creator. Okay. For God. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so this red light that shines over everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's got, it's got
0: quite the gatekeeper
2: too, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. There's no St. Peter here. Right? No. Yeah. So, um, but when Maisie is taking Lucy to see Harlan, creepy Harlan at the at the motel to try and get work, and he tells her to pull her shirt around herself tighter, right? Because he wants to see what size uniform she wears. That happened to me. Mm. I was 13 years old, you know. Ugh. Why was I looking for work at 13 years old? I don't know, but I was. And this slimy guy, Ugh. yeah, basically did that. And I just thought, you know, it's such a reflection of how we're treated. And then Harlan, you know, Harlan is this, he's a bit stereotypical, I have to say, but he is a a character that reflects sort of a a continuing societal attitude towards Indigenous women. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's that line where he says, um, you Indian chicks are only good for two things and both of them happen in motel rooms. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Finding opportunities to say those things was an important part of writing this book, too.
0: When I was reading the book, I, you know, it sort of felt almost like a, a soil and green as people uh, sort of atmosphere, uh, but rather, you know, referring to, you know, oil as. as you know the death of living things, and that really—it's all around us. And our plastics, and pipelines, and plants uh, seeping into our our bodies. I—I um, I was, you know, I was so struck by that thought, and then I started kind of going out and, you know, thinking about the world that that I live in, and 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 seeing it uh, everywhere what What have the people of Sarnia reacted at all to this book and and your your vision of toxic sublime
4: I know I mean they're pretty in Sarnia they're pretty used to media um, sort of negative media, negative framing media about their community um, and so I don't think they will see this as a particularly novel threat in any way um, yeah, and I think in terms of what you're saying more broadly, yes, I was fascinated by. Uh, I'm fascinated, continue to be fascinated by the aesthetics of oil, um, the way it can live around us all the time, insidiously and invisibly. I think the stealth of oil culture is one of the things that's uh, most dangerous about it. As we know with things like, you know, intensive animal agriculture, if you can't see the thing, right? If you can't see the thing that's damaging you and damaging your community, and if you can't see the horror, um, it's allowed to, to proliferate to a much greater extent, and it's allowed to become much more horrific. So I think that's one of the things about oil. I think one of the things I'm trying to do is illuminate oil, right? To let us see oil. And I mean, so so your sense that reading the book allowed you to sort of see the oil, um, how insidiously it has infiltrated your life um that means a great deal to me and that's you know that's one of the one of the things i want to do here i think if we could see the oil if we could look at the oil a bit differently if we could even respect the oil right because oil gets a really bad rap in um in popular civilization for you know we use words like toxicity we use words like filth the oil itself of course is a neutral substance so i mean it's 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 us that's pulling it up from the ground and creating toxic conditions. So if we could see and sort of respect the oil and maybe even revere the oil or just understand that um, it's a naturally occurring substance, um, maybe we could think of it as a gift. Maybe we could think of it as a beautiful thing that it is. If you actually look up photos of bitumen, you'll see um, it's profoundly beautiful. Um, so... I'm trying to rethink oil. I'm trying to think that underbelly of our civilization. I'm trying to excavate that a little bit and allow us to to see our world anew.
0: And you talked about that there's sort of certain difficulties in adopting to life in the United States as a Canadian. Um, what, how, how, how have your thoughts on those difficulties changed through the Trump era and then through the extreme situation oh of a pandemic in the Trump era? <laughs>
5: Right. So what I was talking about at the time I wrote the piece, which was about 2015, um, you know, the the two things that always trip me up about American culture, just for context, I lived in Canada until I was 22, was born and raised there. So, you know, I've been in the United States for most of my adult life at this point, but I will never get used to the healthcare situation or gun culture. I think that... The situation of living in the United States was really beautifully summed up by a fellow Canadian author, Omar el And he wrote a wonderful novel a few years ago called American War, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's a great book. Mm -hmm. I interviewed him at a bookstore in Brooklyn and we got to talking about the condition of being a Canadian living in the United States. Mm -hmm. And what we have in common is that we both feel incredible gratitude for the opportunities we've had in this country. You know, there is a lot of opportunity Here. But what Omar said about it, he said, you know, the thing with the United States is there's no ceiling and there's no floor. And that just resonated with me so much. And I think it's something that's kind of been exposed to the world with the COVID situation, which is that, you know, there's just no floor here. Uh, Americans are kind of on their own in a way I feel that Canadians maybe aren't. You know, it's a much more I guess, a much more individualistic society. Um, There's just a lot of kind of winging it and hustling and trying to get by. And that's just been so terribly exposed by the pandemic.
0: So going back to that concept of, you know, kicking up, what's the relationship between comedy and politics? Like, why do they go so well together?
6: Well, when I was growing up, in Newfoundland, we, you know, politics was something everybody talked about at the dinner table, like it was wrestling or something, because in Newfoundland, we have these giant personalities, especially back then, you know, Smallwood and Crosby. And these people were more like wrestlers than politicians, you know, uh, the mayor of St. John's at the time, uh, Andy Wells was like, you know, this loud misogynist guy who every time you turned on the news. There'd be some other crazy statement and everything was, you know, you grew up, just everybody was talking about it all. And I think, um, I, I think it, it's topical. It pushes buttons. Politicians are, are good characters. It's, it's like when you were a kid in school, making fun of teachers in a lot of way, you know, and now the teacher is Trump or Trudeau or whoever. Everybody thinks they're an expert without knowing anything about politics, which is great for comedy. <laughs> um, you can, You can be an expert these days just by picking a side, you know, it's like I'm and and that's it. And you don't have to look any deeper. But I think that people like to see um, maybe somebody kind of. You know, oh, they're going to get taken down a notch or maybe see that there's a humanity in them who likes to, you know, uh, who can take a joke. Like, I mean, uh, the early when Mary Walsh would do her ambushes as Merck, generally she'd grab the person and do kind of like a monologue next to him. Whereas I always wanted to go, well, let them talk. You know, if they say something better than me, that's fine too. You know, it's, it's more in the moment. And then if they say something, well, I don't really have a plan for that because I don't know what they're going to say. So that's more exciting for me, you know? So some of those were uh, a lot of fun in that way for me, but I, I, I think, you know, a. Uh, some of the people considered a regular person walking up to someone is, and who's supposed to be high and mighty and 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 making fun of them about something or calling them on something. Uh, I people think really get that because I think they, they kind of see themselves in that moment, kind of like good, good that happened. Or and now they might come away with a better thinking highly higher of somebody than they did before, or maybe less than someone than they did before. I also like the people who I've ticked off in the past, who would then do it again. So I, I've learned a lot about uh, people, I think, in particular, certain people, um, from that, and and you know, uh, kind of respect them more for being able to take a joke.
0: Like a fine wine. The more good art ages, the richer it becomes. That can be said of the relationship between art and technology. The more it evolves, the more relevant the work becomes. The days of generational divide are closing by the nanosecond. Technology is so embedded in society and our future that we have no choice but to be in sync with one another, no matter what age, shape, color, gender be it an app, a website, a virtual space, tech is not disappearing into the background. There is a dependency on digital systems and culture and the creative process. Is that good or bad? My guests explain. You've brought it up a couple times. I wanted to ask you about aging you know, uh, you, 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 won the Amazon first novel award for, for example, right. Um, and you know, uh, that's amazing, but, but, but you've said, you know, I probably don't look like, uh, many, uh, first time, uh, novelists, <laughs> but, 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 you know, so much and, and particularly with the pandemic, right. And, and some of the, you know, the, the terrible, uh, loss of life inside, uh, long-term care facilities. Um, we look at what we lose as we age. What do we gain as we age, Michelle?
2: Well, my goodness, I don't think of it as, I don't ever think of losing things as I age. I, I don't. I mean, we give value to aged cheese. Right? <laughs> wine? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, wine, right? Like, it's like if we look at that word as being something beyond a chronological counting of years and you know the you know wrinkles and white hair and so on and so forth Uh, you know somebody asked me you know why this happened at this point in my life and why you know I didn't write it when I was younger and I don't think I could have written it when I was younger quite Mm -hmm. frankly I don't think I would have brought the depth of experience and understanding that I have um if I was writing this as a younger person, I probably would have just got really annoyed and stomped off. <laughs> <laughs> and fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, that was, there were times though, I must say, when I had to walk away from the writing sometimes for a year. Right. Because it was so uh, infuriating and, um, frustrating because, you know, the world is going on around you while you're, while you're trying to distill this experience. And then, you know, and you read an article and it's just like, Oh my God, did somebody actually say that? Like the other day, there was an article in the Winnipeg Sun about, uh, well, it was an it was an opinion piece. Um, and, uh, uh, basically saying you're jumping to, you know, everybody's jumping the gun about these bodies found in Kamloops. We don't know that they're kids. Uh, we don't know how they died, you know, blah, 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 right? Like the the apologist nonsense that we're constantly dealing with. And, you know, you get that and then you get the comments. Oh, it's just like, you know, and then, you know, Colton Bushy died um, during the writing of this book. He's my relation. Mm. He's from my reserve. He, we're, we were, well, we still are related. And, and the terrible commentary that came out of Saskatchewan Folk um, after that incident. And, you know, it just sort of shuts you down a little bit and you have to walk away. Otherwise, you're going to write a really mad book. And I don't want to write a mad book. <laughs>
0: Now, uh, I try not to be nostalgic, but I have to say one of the things I miss, you know, uh, because, you know, I had this idea. I have a teenage daughter and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go get her some like great fashion magazines and, you know, and she can cut stuff out and, you know, pin stuff that she likes and, you know, or even if she just takes a photo of it, you know, and uh, uh, for, for Instagram or whatever. But, you know, the magazines are so tiny now (laughs) and there's just not that many of them. So speaking of you know, technology disrupting. What's your take, uh, sort of, on the state of style journalism? And and mm. you know, it could it disappear? Like like that? You know, that the ad revenue, the, the the trying to get eyeballs oh. on the fashion is such a part of it. Well, again, wow, that's such a
3: big question because yes paper magazines which I love like who doesn't like to get under the covers with a a magazine that you can hold I mean that whole especially now like who wants to look at another screen (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) however I still think you know uh, it's gone that way and I I don't think that's gonna go back I think hopefully there will always be that um you know that ephemera in our lives that we love paper things that we can hold on to and save in scrapbooks and 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 I I don't want to ever see that go away but the digital magazine is definitely here to stay. You can change it on a dime, and you know there's just a lot about it that does make sense. When you talk about fashion journalism, um, this whole movement, um, the democratization of fashion, that uh, you know, I think fashion television, the show that I hosted for 27 years, had a lot to do with that because we ended up teaching a lot of people about fashion and all of a sudden fashion wasn't just for the snobby elite fashion was for everybody. And why not, you know, come on in, let's see this thing and let's look at it, enjoy it, talk about it. And you know, what makes, you know, someone a better fashion critic than someone else? I mean, everyone had an opinion. I mean, when that young blogger Tavi Gevinson came along um, back in, I guess maybe it was like 20, 2010. uh, Yeah. Just a couple of years before the demise of fashion television, she brought this whole new awareness that, you know, you could be a kid growing up in your Suburban bedroom, and have a very valid opinion about fashion. It might not be as studied as a great fashion journalist like Susie Menkes, but still, yeah. it was it was valid. Um, so it it depends what kind of fashion journalism you're looking for. Um, I think it's sad that a lot of uh, seasoned writers who really have a great frame of reference because personally I think that's what makes an opinion or a point of view more interesting or it gives it more gravitas when you've had a huge frame of reference and some of these journalists the great fashion journalists really do do and did have a great frame of reference a lot of the kids that were just hopping on the scene were just you know they saw it they liked it they didn't like it it was there one minute it was not there the next and they weren't you know necessarily um beautifully skilled writers and the way they wrote about fashion you know wasn't that intriguing to me anyway but I don't know there's a whole generation I mean I think you have to ask your daughter but you know it's funny we do want and I've got two daughters myself who I guess I did want them in some ways to see the world the way I saw it on the other hand I was always really encouraging them to blaze their own trails and now these were girls that grew up in the the fashion television kind of world where you know they, they were sitting in the front row of a Christian Lacroix couture show in Paris at the age of twelve, or you know meeting Valentino backstage at the age of fourteen, or you know, whoa, like they really <laughs> got to see it all. Yeah, wow. They ha- not that they don't love style, and they both have sensational senses of style, but they didn't. They don't consume fashion um, the way. Our generation did at all. Yeah. One of them actually lives off grid in a log cabin in the Yukon. I uh, Joey, Joey O'Neill. She's a musician and she has a great sense of style, but will only wear vintage uh, clothes and you know that uh, And my other daughter, uh, Becky O'Neill, who is a great uh, artist herself, she's an animator and a filmmaker and lives on the farm and she's a farmer she's an organic farmer and she's very conscious of this whole you know circular thing and fashion and she will only wear you know um used clothing like she doesn't want anything brand spanking new there's no appeal to that so it, it it so interesting to me that it's all about moving forward and and progress and we we can turn our kids on to you know the way we saw the world or what we love but they're going to take it and do something else with it and I, I, we can only applaud that because that's what progress is all about
0: we've often focused on the problems presented by risk but there is always light at the opposite end of the tunnel we would be remiss if we didn't zero in on risk and how to push through it podcast is called at risk. And our central question is, do you truly value something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? Which is to say, do you have to think about risks? Like do you, do you have to think about risks in order to value something?
2: That's really an interesting question. I think if you spend too much time worrying about losing something you're you're not going to reach for it um and you know like with writing this book if I had been fearful that it wouldn't be a success or you know that I would lose something as a result of of writing it I probably wouldn't have written it
0: it's the little micro decisions that that I think are quite exhausting. So when people talk about pandemic fatigue, I, uh, you know, and I think this is a lesson at risk to trying to remember like, okay, well, what, what is our purpose? Our purpose in life isn't to not get COVID. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> our, our, our purpose is, is something else. And so that's why, you know, it, it, it can make sense to send your kids to school
5: or, or join a pod. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so much depends on the individual where, you know, my daughter was really happy to be home with us when school ended, which kind of surprised me because she also loved school. But, you know, anecdotally, I've heard about other kids who were really not doing well, like their mental health was really suffering from being away from school. And if I had one of those kids, absolutely. I'd send her back. You know, um, I feel lucky that I didn't have to.
0: I was reading, you know, uh, uh, before the invasion, um all of the traffic and road signs were taken down. Okay, makes sense. You don't want to make it easier for Russians to uh, invade your country. But then they were replaced with signs that, you know, said Russian expletives, you know, yeah. um, you know, uh, there was a joke, you know, you don't have to declare a Russian tank. I captured Russian tank on your taxes. Um, what do you, <laughs> what do you think is happening there? I, I, I mean, like, I wonder at it. I, I, I kind of love it. Um, but it's strange, right? It's, it's, you know, comedy as a uh, being deployed in, in a war. What do you make of that?
6: I think there's always comedy in wars, though. You know, like you um, people, World War Two and and today, they always write funny messages on bombs, you know, and they'll before they're dropped. And uh, there are people um, in Afghanistan. There are lots of kind of funny signs up there and stuff. I think it's all about morale and comedy in a tragic moment. And a horrible time when people are dying, when the the, the fabric of society is being pulled apart. When you look around, you can't believe this is Earth anymore. I think a comedy is a great reminder of humanity. It's almost like a, it sounds corny, but it's like a flower growing up in the sidewalk somewhere, you know, you can blow up a building, but it doesn't mean you're going to beat someone's spirit. And that fighting spirit, I think when there's uh, against all odds, you know, I think humor can do a, a, a lot to uh, inspire people and um, bolster courage and maybe even cover fear. Comedy can also do that. Right. So um, I, I'm not really surprised by it. You know, I I, I, I think it's a great it's a, it's a reassurance. You know, it's it's a signal that um, all is not lost and uh that the spirit survives you know uh and is is Ukraine a, a place on a map yes but it's also the spirit of the people it, it they are ukraine right it's not necessarily rocks so i think as long as as there is humor there is life there is hope because humor is is hope as well i think and uh and and uh, it's uh, it's a comfort you know and it's a rallying cry
0: yeah, you know, I really appreciated that, um, you know, uh, that that balance between um, and this is honestly, this is like the focus of the podcast. It's like, OK, so we have to think about the things that threaten what we love, what we value, what's important to us, uh, our progress. Um, but how do you do that and also stay focused on those positive things and keep moving forward and still chase those things and find joy during the journey. How do you, how do you bring all those together? (laughs) What's the answer, Jeannie Becker? Well, I what the meaning of life is. (laughs) What do I know? I'm just lucky uh,
3: to be here, actually. I think you got to have faith. You know, you got to, you got to believe in something greater than yourself, the most wonderful thing about getting older for me anyway, I, I don't know if this is true, you know, for other people, it would be worth investigating. I haven't talked to a, a lot of people about this, but is the erosion of ego. Hmm. I have found the older I get, the the less seriously I take myself, um, which is a great blessing. <laughs> and, um, and the less I care about, you know, what other people think, um, I just want to make myself happy. And the less, you know, these statusy things that we sort of, you know, clamor after sometimes at certain points in our lives, you know, the, the less they matter. Um, I think, you know, the and certainly the less we compare ourselves to others, the happier we're going to be. Number one, number one, number one. That's a very important thing. Um, and that's why, you know, why Instagram has been such a a social evil. I mean, it's it's great when it's great and it's horrid when it's horrid. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this, this thing of, you know, look at someone else's life and, oh, my life doesn't seem like that much fun. You know, we're always comparing ourselves and we're always judging everybody. You know, we've got to really stop doing that. So that's, that's something that's brought me um, a a, a kind of inner peace, but I've always been dancing as fast as I can. And I am not going to slow down anytime soon. Excellent. (laughs) heard it here first, maybe not first, but I'll I'll keep saying that forever because I think um, it gives me a lot of joy to feel that I'm remaining relevant. And uh, that, to me, you know, it's, what else can you ask for? You know, as long as you feel that you're contributing something somewhere um, and and you're you're keeping up with stuff and you're embracing what's going on and you're not living, you know, in, in the past in some hole somewhere. I think that's really important. You know, that I, I, I have a wonderful partner that uh, I fell madly in love with. I met him when I was 63 years old. We just celebrate our sixth anniversary together. So it took me a long time to find the one or the right one. Um, but uh, the night we met uh, at the McMichael art gallery, it was a moonlight gala very romantic uh, kind of night. The stars had just aligned. And he walked up to me from across the room. And he goes, you know, hi, you know, my name's Ian McKennis. I just want to say that I've always admired you for having kept yourself so relevant. And I thought, what a great thing for a woman to hear a man say, or for anyone <laughs> maybe to hear anyone say. But I just thought, okay, this is the guy that gets it. He's going to understand why I've been so passionate and dedicated to my career and why it's always going to be important for me to be out there and to and to be doing and and creating and and being inspired and trying to inspire others so uh yeah relevance is uh very important i just had a a, my own podcast beyond style matters um just did an interview with norma kamali the legendary american designer and Always a very forward thinker, she's great. Uh, she's turning uh, 76 this month, and she talked a lot about that, about relevance, and how uh, that really is key to uh, to happiness.
0: Thank you to everyone who joined us on these episodes. I was so enriched by all of them, and I really appreciate uh, the care and uh, the patience that these guests demonstrated with me as. I do not identify as an artist, and I don't think anyone would identify me as an artist either. But I was absolutely jazzed by these conversations, so I'm super grateful to all of my guests. We've talked about the business of risk, ideas about the risks to our health and our healthcare system, and now the impactful benefits of risk in art. But who can give us this risk advice on a regular basis? What can you do to get help in a risky situation? Find out on our next and final wrap-up episode. Enormous thanks to my production team on these recordings, to Aisha Jarrah and Camille Hemming for compiling these, and of course you, our faithful listeners. Be sure to share this if you seek to inspire other purpose-filled risk-takers. Subscribe to Canada 2020 at risk and find even more amazing stories now. Be careful out there. Michelle, thank you for taking the risk of writing this exceptional and moving work of literature that engrosses as much as it educates. Right, Rich, thank you so much for taking the risks of comedy on and for really showcasing the freedoms we enjoy in this country. So thank you so much.
6: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love it.
0: Eric, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for sharing your insights about what's happening in your home country with us Canadians and and thank you for for sharing Tumbling Woman with Canada and the world
4: thank you for joining me David thank you yeah
0: thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, about your books and for sharing your books with the world Uh, I'm super grateful to have had this opportunity to speak with you Emily
5: well thank you I enjoyed it so much thanks for interviewing me Thank you
0: so much. Thank you so much for being just a a total trailblazer for being so open and candid about the ups and the downs and for sharing this time with me. It's been an absolute delight and thrill.
3: Jody, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. You're a delight. Thank you so much. This is really, really fun.